competition. Yes, that's how I felt. Absolutely. I was like, suddenly now I'm a nobody. And where am I? I'm in Bumblefuck, Cambodia. You know, like, what? how on earth did I get here? Welcome to the Foreign Or Podcast. A look into the lives of expats, migrants, aliens, and everything in between. Each episode, I pick one foreign or and cross-examine that individual to try and determine how on earth did they get there. This episode, I sit down with Dancing Debbie. She's Dutch. No, she's African. Mm, she's Asian. She's a lifetime foreigner and model expat living and giving locally. My name is Debbie Lee Van Ginkel. That's a good old-fashioned Dutch name because I'm South African, but I'm living in Siem Reap, Cambodia, and I teach Nia and lead Nia retreats. So can you tell me where you are from originally? I was born in Johannesburg in South Africa and I think I was around 10 when we moved down to the Cape. We moved to a little town called Hermanus, which is around two hours outside of Cape Town along the coast, very close to the southernmost tip of Africa. Um, we have beautiful mountains, we have beautiful ocean, really wild, rough, cold ocean. So it's, it's a really exquisite part of the world, and that's where I grew up. Perfect. So I want to know everything about this place because I've never been to Africa. And I remember you telling me the last time we were physically in the same place that your friend owns a safari park. Gosh, you remember that. That's amazing. I mean, how do you forget? <laughs> like, why would you leave that? Why would you leave yeah. a place that you just said is exquisite and that's that's quite a complicated answer um when i was 16 my mom decided to take a job in china in beijing at the time she was a montessori school teacher and the reason we went to china was not because we were fascinated with the far east or I mean, my mom had never set foot in Asia. And when the job offer came through, she still, you know, said to us, well, that's preposterous. I have two teenage daughters and we have a beautiful life here in our hometown. And um, it's the end of your school career. There's no ways I'm taking you out of school now and going to live in a place where I've never considered even traveling to. Um, so... But long story short, for financial reasons, because my mom was a single mom, this job offer was really attractive and the money, it was a very lucrative offer. So we convinced her that we should do this. I think we probably thought this was more of an adventure. So we decided to go, the three of us, and it was just a year contract. So she completed that year and then... The plan was to go back to South Africa and, and find jobs and carry on and finish high school, which I did. I went back to high school uh, just before my final exams, which was really difficult because I experienced severe um, reverse culture shock. You know, after a year in Beijing in 1997, when Beijing was definitely a different place, uh, 
I had changed a lot and I went back to high school, had to put on a school uniform and listen to who is going out with who, you know, <laughs> and I just didn't give a crap. So it was, it was pretty tough to um, be back at school in a very small town, in a very conservative town, um, very Protestant. This is so interesting. I don't want to talk, but I want to clarify. So did you go oh, to s- school at all in Beijing? You and your sister, what did you uh, do? No, yeah. we, at the time, there was only one international school in Beijing. That was the internet ISB, the International School of Beijing. Um, and the school fees were actually, as they are now, ridiculously high. And my mom had no way of paying for those that kind of school fees. So we decided to homeschool. So pretty much for that year, we were sitting in a small flat. I remember exactly where it was, just near, just up the road from Yensha, you know, Lufthansa Center. And uh-huh. we were living in the small flat and mom would go off to work and my sister and I would, we were such dedicated, good girls. We would wake up every day at the same time get our books ready, have our breakfast, study. 10 o'clock, we'd have a TV break for half an hour and a snack and then go back to the books. And that's how we got through that year. We just um, homeschooled ourselves. And it was difficult because, you know, there was no online learning. It was when I got stuck with maths or uh, science questions, I had to fax um, my school, my teacher back home and ask her for help, you know, facts. facts. Yeah. Facts. As in facsimile. A facsimile. Yes. <laughs> there was no just yes. jump Girl, on a, yeah. And there was no just jump on a zoom call. Um, I mean, I think email existed then, but I didn't have email. So, so it was super, super challenging. And, um, wow. And we didn't speak Chinese. We didn't have any friends except for each other. So it was also, I would say, a transformative year, but also very challenging. Um, But also really extremely special. It was the three of us on this massive adventure. Uh, And it was like landing on the moon. So, you know, Beijing was an incredibly different place to what it is now. And it was seriously like landing on the moon. And when people, when people came to visit, they would bring us cheese (laughs) because you couldn't buy, you know, April Gourmet didn't exist. Jenny Liu's did, but it was the size of my bathroom. And I think there was one bottle of red wine that you could buy, maybe one loaf of bread and no cheese. That's for sure. So, well, my sister, my mom and I have always been, you know, stuck together like glue, but I think it really solidified our bond and tackling this huge challenge together. The three of us in China, you know. I haven't thought about faxes in so long. (laughs) Faxes. Just, I mean, so you had a fax machine in that tiny apartment? No, we didn't. We had to go and use the fax machine at my mom's school. So it was like, you know, you, you know, we, you didn't want to get stuck with maths. That pretty much that's how it was. Um, and luckily, I don't think, to be honest, I don't think most kids could manage this. I think, um, I think we were a bit extremely dedicated and disciplined, and that's what it took. 
Can you just tell me, yeah. like, paint me a picture a little bit more about what it was like pre-Beijing? So you were in this small town living a quiet life in South Africa. And what did that look like? What were you, the things that took up your time? Um, it was a very small town. Like, I think there were 250 people in my high school. And it was mostly Afrikaans speaking. So I'm, wow. my mother tongue is English, but the, the school was pretty much mostly Afrikaans. So it's a little bit, remember, I also grew up in apartheid South Africa. So that was pre-94 and pre-democracy in South Africa, pre-Nelson Mandela getting out of jail. So I remember my best friend was an Indian girl and she was the first non-white in my high school. Um, so so it, it's a very different South Africa to what it is now. And now you have the, the medium is English um, and then you can choose your second language. So it might be Afrikaans or it might be Zulu or Isikosa or Swana, depending on uh, which region you're living in. And can you tell our listeners... What are the the pieces of Afrikaans? It's a mix of Dutch and... Yeah, um, I, I would say it's mostly a derivative of Dutch. Um, or some people say simplified Dutch, which which it is. Um, there are some French words in there. There's some Malaysian words in there. There's some Indonesian words because we have a, a really big Malay population in the Cape. So it's historically a very interesting language. It's difficult for me to understand Dutch, though, and it's, I realized it's quite difficult for Dutch people to understand me speaking Afrikaans. I would say Afrikaans actually sounds a bit closer to Flemish. Um, but the difference was when I was growing up, it was one of the two official languages, which was English and Afrikaans. And now we have 13 official languages because we're a more inclusive country. So it was a, yeah, it was a wonderful place. We spent a lot of time outdoors, um, spent a lot of time at the beach or hiking in mountains. And we had, we lived in a really small house or different houses. We were always renting houses. And I have to say, financially, it was difficult. My mom, you know, has always been a single mom and... She's always had to make a plan. and But despite those financial difficulties, we had an incredibly rich life. Yeah, a very, very happy childhood and very simple childhood, I would say. Um, so when China came along, it was, it was quite a shocker. Because at that point, you were around people that looked like you, besides our, your Indian friend. Yeah. And I had never been overseas, you know. I, I think when we were, when I was about 13, we went to Mauritius on a family holiday. And that was the only time I'd ever been overseas. Uh, I'd been to Mozambique and some neighboring countries in, in Africa, but I'd never been to a place where, yeah, people didn't look like me uh, or speak another language. So the three of you decided to go. <laughs> Sorry. It's crazy. Like, when did the conversation happen that your mom was like, yeah, there's this opportunity, but you guys can't go to school there? 
Like, how did you talk about leaving and going to China before going? Like, what did you expect? Wow, that's... I, I'm going way back now. You do realize I'm, I'm going to be 40 this year, so I'm stretching my memory way back. <laughs> well, I'm sure you were super excited and you convinced your mother, but why? Like, what drove you to want to go? Yeah, I, I do remember convincing my mother. I remember sitting down with my mom and she saying, you know, girls, this is just, it's very tempting to go on this adventure with you and it, the money is definitely tempting because she was thinking, you know, I have two girls and they deserve to go to university and and I don't know how I'm going to pay for all of that. And, but she also said at the same time, it's, you know, this is ludicrous idea to take you out of school when you're set up so well in this stage of your high school career. Why would I do that? Why would I destabilize you? And believe me, from her friends, wow, she got a lot of, a lot of criticism from people in town. Some of it was... Yeah, how can you take your two girls out of high school? And a lot of it was, how can you take them to China where they are atheists and they don't believe in God? There was a lot of that. Yeah, there was a lot of that, um, which, which my mom just ignored. But basically, I remember having that conversation and saying to my mom, but we will do this together. We'll get through and you know we will and I think we were just focused on the adventure to be honest but I have to say because I'm now 39 and my mom must have been yeah wow she was younger than me when she took her two teenage daughters to China <laughs> so I can't even imagine having two teenage daughters or even a baby even just one baby never mind taking those babies, those big babies across the world and being responsible for them in when you land on the moon, you know. Um, so I have immense respect for what my mother did. I don't know if it was complete naivety or... <laughs> but I have massive respect for her. You went, you, you three came and then you three went back and then you and so, your sister returned yeah. to to Beijing? No, no, this gets more in interesting. So my sister and I, <laughs> we went back, we, went, we did our final exams, and then we decided to go to university in South Africa. And I, we both went to the same university. I studied political science and international relations. And I was dead set, I had my heart on becoming either a diplomat or working for the United Nations or something along that, that line. Or being a journalist, uh -huh. I did think of that as well. Um, uh -huh. So we, we got through university, which was a really happy time for me. I, I really enjoyed studying and I enjoyed what I was studying. And being a student, it was fantastic, especially in Stellenbosch, which is, you know, wine country and it's gorgeous and there's wonderful student life and wine tasting after class and whatever um wow yeah it was it was very idyllic and during that time those four 
five years that I was at university, uh, my mother got offered another position, a different teaching post back in Beijing through contacts that she had gained in Beijing. So this time we said, well, mom, this is a breeze. Go for it. You know, jump at that opportunity. Yeah. And basically when I had finished studying, I was... I wasn't really sure which route I wanted to take, so I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go and visit my mom and spend three weeks and just reconnect. And I was really excited to go back to China and reconnect with those memories. And so, well, you can end the podcast here because I just never left. That's the end. And I ended up staying for 16 <laughs> years instead of three weeks. Sorry. Sorry, I, I'm sure you got the audio on your side, but how long did you end up staying? You cut out. All together, including that first year, 17 years wow. in Beijing. I don't know why I'm surprised every time. I feel like you've told me this before, and it's just unheard of. It's shocking. I agree. Yeah, you went back for three weeks and didn't leave. And how did, yeah, so how did you stay? Well, I, I spent three weeks. I, it was immediate love affair. I realized, wow, China, it felt like coming home. It really did. Like I was deeply connected to China from day one. And it was so exciting to be in China. It was so exotic. And yet I felt completely at home. So I hung out with my mom and I decided, you know, let me just extend my visa a little bit here and there. And then somebody offered, my mom was living in an expat compound um, out in Shunyi. And one of her colleagues said, hey, would your daughter, while she's here, would she like to teach English to the security guards of the compound? <laughs> so I so I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And that was my first job in China, teaching English. I started teaching the security guards. Good morning. Can I see your registration? Uh, you know, thank you. Goodbye. Really simple stuff. But I loved it. I, I, I remember that first teaching job so clearly, and I just absolutely loved it teaching, you know, 25, 18-year-old um, guys from the Chinese countryside who couldn't speak a word of English, but we had a fantastic time. Did they, did they, did they ask you how to, how to say, I love you, like, well, I need in English? Because, like, clearly all of them were in love with you. What luck, <laughs> those guys. <laughs> you could have anybody... <laughs> Anybody teach you English, but you get Debbie as your English teacher. It's like a Chinese Nongming Bao An. Do they all have like big uh, uniforms? Oh, like, they were huge. I, re I remember they were just drowning in the uniforms. It was really cute. It was really, really sweet. Um, and they were so oh incredibly goodness. polite. That's what I loved about, that's what I love about Chinese people, actually. That, you know, the politeness. I mean, there, there may have been, you know, some kind of cute, like, how do I say what I mean exactly, but there was never any making me feel uncomfortable or anything like that. And so, so much respect. It was, it was really fantastic to work with them. So that job led on to 
other teaching opportunities. And kind of, as far as I remember, the months just went by and before I knew it, a year had gone by and I was living in China. And then somebody contacted me. <laughs> I don't know if I should mention names of schools, but I don't think this school exists uh, or it shouldn't. <laughs> it was so-called, and this is inverted brackets, inverted commas, the Australian International School of Beijing. Sounds fake. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to say there was any real connection with Australia because there certainly was not. But they got hold of me through a contact and said, uh, so would you like to be the year one and two teacher? So I said, um, well, I could do with a job to make money, but uh, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a qualified teacher. I've never studied teaching. And, and they, they just, I remember the principal looking at me and saying, well, you look perfect for the job, so you've got it. You do look perfect for yeah. the job, though. I'm telling you, she, Debbie's like poster child for, you know, your kids speaking perfect English. Exactly. And it was the time in China. It was a very different China to what it is now or what it has been in recent years. It was the time of China when, and I really hate to say this, but if you had blonde hair and blue eyes, you could do whatever the hell you wanted to do in China. You could be an English teacher, you could be a principal of a school, you could be an actress, you could be a model, you could, I mean, you were immediately famous because of what you looked like. You know, these days were still, when you went to Tiananmen Square, um, families from the countryside would come up to you, and I remember the guys would ask their wives to take the picture, and the man and his kids would stand around me, with his arm around me, and the poor wife would take the picture. And I mean, there must be pictures of that circulating around the country. Um, here's oh me my and my God. new blonde wife. Or It was ridiculous. And you were there for some months, equaling to a year. And then your, your sister's still back home and your mother stays or leaves? So my mom was here throughout this whole period. She stayed. She actually stayed 19 years. I didn't know that. I did not my know that. My mom only left. When I left to come to Cambodia, she left. On the same night, we both left China. That was the end of that life, that chapter. Yeah, she was there throughout. My mom was the anchor in Beijing, for sure. And then your sister did live in Beijing for some time. My sister at this time, she was actually in the States. She had a boyfriend in the States, so she lived there for a while. She eventually came back. Um, she had a breakup in America and she came over to Beijing and pretty much the same. She reconnected with the country and remembered it. And we realized, wow, this is a very special soul home for us. It's very deeply ingrained. We, it's something I can't explain, but we just all felt completely at home in, in China, in Beijing. So during that period, I had my mom, my boyfriend, my sister, we were all living in Beijing. So 
you know, I recognize that when, when foreigners go overseas, they usually do it alone or maybe with a partner. Um, but they don't have their entire family network there, which I did. And, and that, I think, made it feel much more like this is home. Had you guys ever thought about living in another city in China? Um, no. And actually, so when I say, you know, China felt like home, maybe I should clarify, Beijing felt like home. Beijing was definitely home. I mean, I, I have traveled China extensively and never ever do I want or even consider, like, maybe I should come and live here. There's just some, well, you know, there's just something magical about Beijing. And we certainly, all three of us, felt it and still feel it and it was also a time when you could just buy your visa which you know a whole bunch of us did right you know you just paid some dude and you got a you got a year extension on your visa so everything was was really relaxed and carefree and with that brought this yeah the sense of freedom that if you had a crazy idea, you could make it happen in Beijing. You could test it out, you could do it. So there were many periods in Beijing that my life was pretty fluid and I was, yeah, I was doing some modeling and some acting in TV commercials and and then some teaching on the side and basically whatever kind of paid the bills and gave me my freedom. I love Beijing, but, I know you know that it became like a harder and harder place to live. Exactly. I'm sure in 97, there weren't so many cars. Uh, There weren't so many people, right? Beijing as as a city wasn't so full. Right. Absolutely. Oh, it became a very brutal place to live. Yeah. Yeah. Pre-Olympics was a great time to be. I think that was the best time to be in Beijing. And then everything changed. I mean, you had a second home and you saw it build up and out and grow more diverse and harder to stay in. True. It became much more restrictive. Um, I had a lot of troubles with my visas and, and acquiring a visa for China as a South African. Uh, that definitely made it more complicated. And the pollute, like you say, the amount of cars, the pollution, um, the increase in people's money, you know, the, the emergence of the middle class in China definitely changed the vibe of the place. In, in many ways, there was this, all this growth and development, and it was fascinating to see Beijing transform towards, you know, the build-up of the Olympic Games and after. But I do think it was also the beginning of losing a lot of the spirit of Beijing. The transformation in Beijing over those years was just unreal, unbelievable. Definitely some good changes, but definitely some very tough consequences. And you like grew into your adulthood in this like yeah. crazy place, crazy changing place. And when I met you, you were a fully formed human. <laughs> I hope so. Like with friends and like things to keep you busy. And I met you as like the dancer. Ah, 
Wow. So yeah, that that's right. another history. Um, I had, I would say, I had these kind of two lives in Beijing. The one was I was a teacher, an English teacher at an international school. The other part of my life was I, you know, I got involved with a musician. We had a pretty long and turbulent relationship.、Um, so I was kind of. In the expat crowd in international school, though, but I was also in the very creative artistic group in Beijing, which, which as you know yourself, there is a really creative side to Beijing, and a lot of incredibly creative, interesting, fascinating people doing crazy stuff there. So I was part of a tribal belly dance performance troupe. I was very into tribal belly dance, and so that was something I did on the side. I was in a burlesque team, which used to perform all over Beijing. So yeah, I was basically school teacher by day and dancer, performer slash artist at night, and it was great. It was such and made for such a rich kind of life, and so you were going from Shenyi, which is like northeastern Beijing.、Yeah. Kind of suburbs feels like the suburbs, you know, and that's where a lot of the the adult expats, as I would call them, the people with kids, the people with family, the people with nine to five jobs yeah, live. Yeah. And then, yes, where I met you was in Gulo, which is like the heart、Hello. of Beijing and like definitely the heart of the hipster artist scene. And so you went,、yeah. not too many miles, but. Worlds apart. Worlds apart, and also it took forever with that crazy traffic you were talking about. So、um, yeah, I commuted every day because I was living in this really cute little ancient house, and I was the only foreigner in the hutong amongst all these Chinese neighbors. And I just had this idyllic life in the heart of old Beijing, you know. But every day I would commute all the way to the northeast of Beijing, where I joined the ranks of you know other expats who are working in international schools, and and that's a very different group. I didn't feel completely. I mean, I met wonderful people and colleagues, but I didn't really feel part of them or their group because I think that kind of crowd, you know, they they. They go to Beijing, or they go to whichever city they're assigned to, but they're career-driven. They're not necessarily in Beijing for Beijing. They're there for a job, and that makes quite a difference. You know, I was living a very local life. I was speaking Chinese and integrated, and eating Chinese food and street food, and、um, just interacting with China very. On a very big scale, whereas I think many expats who work for big companies, they are dependent on that company, and they find their social circles in that from that workplace. And often, their house is assigned to them, and they're assigned a housekeeper and a, often a driver, and so basically they live in a bubble, and they don't actually have to interact if they don't want to with. Real China, and Shunyi definitely feels like a bubble as well. Yes, absolutely. Oh, absolutely a bubble. I mean, it also it depends on 
your reasons for being in a place. And my reasons was certainly not because of the job. My reason was I had this like love affair with Beijing and at some time at some points it was pretty toxic. <laughs> but I I would do any job that gave me a visa because I was committed to staying in Beijing. So while I was in Beijing, personal life is also going on, you know, relationships and friendships and health issues and, you know, life is happening all in Beijing. Um, I found myself in, when was it, 2007, I found myself at a very low point. Um, I was anorexic and had been bulimic for most of my early adulthood. You know, I thought I'd gotten over the bulimia and it actually was just the other side of the coin, which is anorexia, and was... Did your family know? Who knew? Uh, at this point, everybody, when it started getting really obvious, everybody knew. I mean, my work colleagues knew. Everybody knew, except I just wouldn't accept that I was sick. I, I was, I mean, this is a common response from people with eating disorders is that, first of all, they just don't think they have a problem and they think they're in control. And I certainly thought I was in control and I, you know, my life was in order. But the reality was that my relationship was on the rocks. My friendships were on the rocks because I had become such a control freak about food that I wouldn't go out to eat with people um, or socialize. I was pretty much living in Beijing, teaching and just running myself to a standstill every night on the gym, running home in the snow <laughs> to get extra exercise and then going home in the middle of winter and eating a cabbage salad. So life wasn't very fun, let's say, or joyful at that point. And yeah, this, this carried on for a few years and, and people definitely no noticed that there was something wrong with me. I mean, I looked horrendous. I, I weighed nothing. Um, so I went back home to South Africa one Christmas and actually at this point my mom was having a year sabbatical shall we say from Beijing and she was living in South Africa so she hadn't seen me for about six months and mm. her first reaction when she did see me was just I mean it was complete shock and horror mm. as as to what had become of my body so she tore up my air ticket and said, you're not going back to China until this is sorted out, until we've got you help. I had wow. to put my life in China on hold and get some serious help for my eating disorder. So it seemed to me that the fastest way was to go to a rehab where in Cape Town, which was a center that, an addiction center that dealt with all sorts of addictions and so there were heroin addicts, there were cocaine addicts, gamblers, alcoholics, codependency, 
uh, yeah, eating disorders, you name it, um, all in, in one center. And basically, I booked into this center for six weeks and um, got help through the 12-step program and lots of therapy. And that was all fine and well and definitely an interesting experience and one that I'm grateful for, for what I learned about myself and all the issues that came up. But the thing that really was a turning point in my life is that during these six weeks in rehab, they, they would offer different therapies, like the one day we had drumming, the other day we had art, and because I wasn't allowed to exercise, right? All the other patients were encouraged to exercise and go for walks on the beach, but I was prohibited from that because that was my drug, and I was always pushing myself over the limit, and they wanted me to realize that the sky is not going to fall down if you don't exercise for a day or even a week. And I remember them coming to me, the nurses, and saying, look, you can partake in this class that we're offering today, but the nurse will be in the room with you, and if you overdo it, we're pulling you out immediately. <laughs> so I wow. said, okay, I'll be a good girl and see what this is about. And it was Nia. It was this practice called Nia. And it was a little bit strange. You know, a whole bunch of no, non-dancers dancing crazily around the room, doing movements that felt very natural to me and came to me because I've, as a young girl, I was doing modern dance. But I hadn't danced for all these years. And suddenly... I just felt this massive sense of pleasure, like pleasure that I had not experienced for so many years, and complete pleasure in my body. And I was moving and I was sweating and I was experiencing all these emotions. What, what really got to me is I was looking at other people, specifically men, who I would say are my dad's age, they'd probably had been fighting in the Angolan War, so they were alcoholics, they had PTSD, they never got help for that, and their lives were a mess. And, you know, in South Africa, you also don't, you know, men generally don't speak about emotional issues, and it's just not what you do as a man. And you certainly don't dance. And here were these white Afrikaans, men in their late 40s, some of them in their 50s, prancing around the dance floor with tears streaming down their faces. And that was such a moment of, of just pure, wow, look at what dance is doing to people. I, I couldn't believe it, what I was seeing, the joy, the tears, everything coming out. It was the most incredible therapy session. So that was my first Nia practice. And then I got out of rehab and I wasn't allowed to go back to China just yet because I needed to go to aftercare and, and get more therapy. So the first thing I did was phone up Nia in South Africa. And I said, hey, I did this, this incredible class and I'd like to take more classes. 
And they said, oh, we're really sorry, but the next two weeks there are no classes because there's a white belt training. So it's the first teacher training if you want to become a near teacher. But you can jump in if you want. So I jumped in. I did the training. At the time, I was a little bit skeptical about... I loved the movement part, but the philosophy part I was very skeptical about. I wasn't sure if I joined a cult. <laughs> I, I also thought these are a bunch of, you know, midlife crises women prancing around in their flare pants. And yeah, I just didn't get it. I wasn't ready to receive the philosophy of Nia, but I did the training and I, I did love the movement. It was movement that I hadn't done for so many years, the dance the connection with music and art. This was all before the burlesque and the tribal belly dance, by the way. This was like my reintegration into dance. And so you went home to mom. She flipped her shit. And she forbade you to go back to China. Do you think you could have gotten help in China? No, no, not at all. Um, I looked for help in China and... China is a restrictive place, you know, there's no eating disorder groups, there's no Alcoholics Anonymous, um, because the government watches any congregation of groups of people. So I guess I could have found a therapist in, in Beijing, but um, I did the therapy route and it, it never really did it for me. I found that I spent hours chatting to the therapist about my daddy issues and all of that, but I still didn't know how to deal with food when I walked out. So I, I think I, I really needed to be in a, surrounded with other people who were having the same issues as I was, and I, I needed some serious care. My personality is, it's always all or nothing. So I, I do believe if, the, if I hadn't got help when I got it, I probably would not have survived. I probably would be dead. Um, because I was really set on ruining my myself. So I'm, my yeah. question to you is, when you got back, how did you, as, let's say, an addict, how did yeah. you go back to that environment and, like, stay healthy? I... At this time, my mom also returned to China, so I had massive support from family and friends. Um, I think I put them through absolute hell. It must have been hell living with me because reintegration into like normal life after you've been in a rehab is, is pretty tough to now take those tools and be normal again and, and socialize normally and deal with your addiction. Um, because even going, even finding normalcy in rehab means you're in a pretty unique place. Yeah, and you're right, also like surrounded, you're surrounded with people who get you and who understand you. And then you go right. into the real world and you're expected to behave like a normal person and deal with food like a normal person or deal with alcohol like a normal person. And you're, you're not you're not normal. Well, you're a different kind of normal. It's, it's, it was definitely a very difficult time of my life, uh, reintegrating. And 
and knowing that I also cannot go back to what I was. That just was not an option. So I had friends support and I had family support in Beijing and thank God for that. And I had Nia, which I would, I can actually honestly 100% say this is the thing that saved my life. And can you, as you now, and not you in 2007, because I'm sure the description is a little different, uh, what is Nia? In 2007, oh. you had this kind of, you know, cult-like rhetoric yeah. that you were taught and you didn't understand. But after 13 years, you have your own explanation of what you think Nia is and like what it means to you. You said that it really like saved you from self-destruction. So generally, yeah. <laughs> what is Nia? <laughs> so you're still confused, honestly. <laughs> What is this Nia thing? So this is actually the question that I like the least in my life. And believe me, it's been going on for 13 years and I still on a daily basis get asked, so what is Nia? Or I get asked, is your name Nia? And I say, no, no, I'm not Nia, Uh, but I teach Nia. So I'm going to make it as simple as I can, but it's a movement practice which combines dance arts, martial arts, and healing arts, like such as yoga and Feldenkrais technique. So basically, if you went to a Nia class, it would look kind of like a dance class, but with some punches and some kicks and some blocks from Taekwondo, maybe a bit of Tai Chi, definitely some yoga, Um, but it's done barefoot to music and you would probably if you came to one of my Nia classes see a whole bunch of different looking bodies and ages doing it in their own way and that's what I love the most about Nia is that it's a really inclusive practice that can be adapted to anybody's abilities and fitness levels it does include choreography So there is simple choreography, but you certainly do not need to be a dancer in order to to go to a Nia class. So it's a very well-developed, holistic, extremely holistic and balanced approach to getting fit in not only your body, but also your mind and your emotions. I did go to one of your classes in Beijing. I mean, it was an incredibly unique experience but we were still in a dance studio, you know, in the city. But you've done, Nia, on the Great Wall of China. You've done it in front of the Drum and Bell Tower. Um, We'll get to it, but you're now doing it in Siem Reap, Cambodia. Absolutely. And, And I'll tell you where else I've done it. I've done it in a refugee camp in Bangladesh and in Thailand in a refugee camp where I took Nia to children and and used it to teach creative movement. So after those experiences, yes, Nia is, is really a lifestyle practice. It's designed to teach you how to engage with your body through movement, not only on the dance floor, but also out, you know, in life. So all the principles and the philosophy that we, we learn and we teach in Nia is applicable in your life, not only 
just for the purpose of working out your body. There is no separation between how you treat your body and how you interact with the world. It's, it's really one. When you were talking about that first class and you said that there were these middle-aged men dancing and becoming emotional, I mm. don't understand why we can't do more of that. Like you said, this stigma about dance and what it is to be a dancer has left out a significant portion of the population. Why can't more people dance? I, I do think this is a societal problem. I think in the country that I grew up in, it's not amongst everyone in that country. Because, for example, black people in South Africa definitely access dance. And the men as well. Everybody dances. Africans love to dance and they're so great at it. I mean, they're just, you know, the kings of dance. But in the white section of the population in which I grew up in, men just don't dance and it's not cool for men to dance. It's not acceptable. It's a woman's thing and it's girly and and it's not every woman's thing. I mean, I also remember, you know, being at school and there were little girls who you were either a ballerina and you looked like a ballerina, or if you were a little bit chubby or heavier, or you didn't dance like a ballerina, you were a non-dancer, basically. And I think that kind of attitude and programming is enforced in a, at a very young age, and it sticks with people. In my profession, I cannot tell you how many people, when I tell them what Nia is, and I say, well, you know, you can try a class. They look at me with this shock on their faces and, you know, they just can't even fathom going to a dance class. And, and they say to me, well, I'm just not a dancer or I have two left feet or I need, you know, six drinks inside of me before I, you'll see me dancing. And it always, you know, it's a joke, but I also think, how sad that you are so disconnected from the most primal form of expression. It's the most primal form of expression to dance. This is what people all over, yeah, and people all over the world and cultures all over the world dance at the most important times of their lives. They dance when they go to war. They dance when they win the war or if they lose the war. They dance at funerals, at weddings, at births. I mean, this is what we've been doing as humans for thousands of years. And where did we stop using this medicine? And that's what, to me, movement and dance is. It is medicine. And I think that if more people tapped into that, they would probably be more peaceful human beings and definitely more joyous human beings because it connects us to something completely authentic. And you do have a dude that dances with you. I do. I'm so lucky that I have a dude who dances. And luckily for me, uh, Jono is just a fantastic person and also felt the same about Cambodia, actually. So I didn't move here alone, and I think that makes a massive difference. I, I definitely had a support system that I brought with me. That you, that you lured. I lured, <laughs> yes, I lured along with me and got him to carry my suitcases.
So how did you extract yourself, and why did you pick Cambodia? The push factors from Beijing, like the pollution and just the way that China was modernizing, and all the consequences that came with that. It wasn't just that that was pushing me out of Beijing. It was more the feeling that now is the time for me to stop working for the sake of working and to take my passion and to make it work for me as a livelihood. And looking around at my options, and of course I looked at South Africa. I mean, I have family there, my sisters there,、um, my grandma, my aunt, and I love my country. It's just not a wise decision right now. I don't think South Africa is in a very good space economically, politically. Yeah, and you know, I have to also be honest that there was some part of me that also had fear around returning back to a Western country.、Mm. Yeah, because I every time I go home, which is roughly once a year, I. Feel like a complete alien, <laughs> like a life. I walk around the supermarket and I think everyone's looking at me, and of course no one's looking at me because I am look the same as they do. But I'm the one that feels completely out of my depths in a Western country. You should see me in America. It's horrendous. It's、um, you should see me in America. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It's it's a crazy sensation. So I think resistance. Towards going backwards to to a person I was when I was seventeen when I left. So I started looking at my options because it was really a case of well I can go anywhere. I mean I'm starting from scratch. So I had been running retreats in Cambodia in Siem Reap every school holiday. When I had time off from my job in China, I would take this group, and we would come to Cambodia and do a Nia retreat. You know, see the temples and dance Nia, and have a holiday.、Um, and every single time I came to Siem Reap, I just had this deep sensation of, or exhale, kind of an exhale. Like the minute I landed at the airport, it was, ah. <sighs> This feeling of I could live here was very deep inside of me. But you went there and you felt a connection, right? How? Yeah. How can that happen twice in a lifetime? I need the answer because I'm looking to build. I'm looking to find that. How do you find that? I have to say, if you're expecting the same connection as you had with China, it's not going to happen.、Mm-hmm. It's going to be a completely different connection, and I I think、yeah. it's based on. Which point you're at in your life and what you're looking for. I was really concerned that I wouldn't make it if I wasn't in a big city with bustle and culture and live music and art. And actually, after Beijing, what I really craved was nature. I really craved gentleness, and the word in my mind that describes the Cambodian people is gentle. And I can't say the same for China. I mean, China is, you know, China. I mean, how can you be gentle? There, you know, one point three billion Chinese people, and what twenty four million people, I think, in Beijing. 
So it can't be gentle. You, you, if you're gentle, you won't survive. And I definitely recognized that there had been within me a hardening of spirit, shall we say, um, after 17 years in Beijing. I was not really liking the way I was to my fellow human being. I mean, this is a Buddhist country I'm living in, and there's a, there is a different feeling here of spirituality, which pervades people's lives every day. So it's not just about the temples. It's not just about the pagodas. It's, it's the Buddhism that I see practiced every single day. And I'm not a Buddhist and I'm not religious, but I, I get a sense of their devotion and their dedication. And I think it's a really beautiful thing. So that, I think also drew me to Cambodia, the people, most of all. So yeah, we landed in Cambodia. I didn't have a clue where to pick a place to live or how anything was done. Or um, I will be honest that maybe for the first two weeks of living here, all I did was sit in my Airbnb in the bedroom and cry. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And think like, what the fuck have I just done? I've left a massive Nia community. I'm a huge star in Beijing. What now? I'm a nobody. And where am I? I'm in Bumblefuck, Cambodia. You know, like, what? how on earth did I get here? Gosh, the first two years of living here were awful. Because... My primary focus was to build a near community. You know, I was teaching, I would go get dressed and prepare my routine and the playlist and do all the work. And Jono would be my only student over and over and over again. And it was heartbreaking for me. And I really had a few months of thinking, I'm never going to make it here. Never. Yeah, it was, it was pretty devastating, but I did stick with it. And I continue to show up, even if no one else showed up. And I teach every class, uh, even to nobody. I would teach. And wow. I just held that space. And I think there's a lot to be said for just hold the space. And eventually, the right people come. And eventually, the right people did come. And I can happily say that now I have a really great, thriving little Nia community here. It's not as big yet but people love it and they're transforming and that's what has filled me up and then the covid happened of course so i've shifted my entire teaching of mia online via zoom and i can't say i've enjoyed it very much um, obviously it's very different teaching to a computer the technical side of things has been a bit of a, a mountain to climb. But what is incredible is that now I'm teaching all my students from Beijing and they're all over the world. I mean, I counted the other day, I have 20 different nationalities taking class with me. Wow. I'm dancing with people <laughs> in Bolivia, in Spain, in Italy, in South Africa, in China, in the States all over the world in Australia. And the reason I keep doing it as much as it's a pain in the ass is the joy that I see at the end of the class. 
with people waving to me from different parts of the world and I knowing that I've connected them to their bodies during this time where there's so much disconnect that they've got out of their heads and into their bodies and into their hearts just for an hour that joy is priceless and you know that's that's what's keeping me going at the moment how how different is it in Cambodia than your life in Beijing oh so different i mean you know beijing life was get up at 6 and get on the subway and then get in a taxi and get on a bus and go 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 whereas here i must say um i i love the freedom that i have to choose how i want to plan my day other than my regular classes which i teach at various studios in town i teach at a yoga studio at a wellness retreat center other than that i plan my days as i want to plan them um if i want to go anywhere it's a 5 minute ride on my scooter Uh, I never have to deal with traffic. I never have to deal with parking issues. I never have to deal with subways or buses. I love that about living here. I really do. I I saw I've seen pictures. It, oh. You live in a wooden house that is open to the elements. Yeah. So I'm not downstairs, and obviously I'm in the bedroom right now with the air conditioner on. We have aircon in the bedroom. but pretty much it's a traditional cambodian wooden house on this beautiful piece of land and we have palm trees with coconuts we have bananas mangoes too many mangoes pineapples uh lemongrass you know it's like a tropical paradise uh if you look at it like that <laughs> it's no it's delightful and and the cats that you have the the tabby yeah i ended up with one and we found out she was pregnant at the time so we ended up with her and the, her kitten and then yeah a few weeks ago another kitten walked into the property like we have no idea where he came from but he stayed and now he's our baby and and you so your cat your cat butlers we're we're the cat butlers for sure i mean yeah we just look they live in cat paradise i mean there's trees there's all sorts of creepy crawly things to catch and hunt every day they come into the house whenever they want because it's an open house so yeah we're cat, cat butlers for sure it's interesting the cambodians have a very different idea of what it means to have pets they don't really have pets they may have a dog or a cat or many cats or many dogs but if those dogs decide to walk off and never come home that's fine that's their life you know they have a very free idea of they're not our animals they're their own animals and sometimes we feed them but it's not our responsibility to decide when they breed or to put them down and yeah it's a, it's a very it's definitely challenged my um way of thinking about how we domesticate animals and so actually one and, of our cats so that we used to have just walked off and he never came back he was old and i believe he just walked off to go and die somewhere but you know i was pretty devastated because it was my pet and the cambodians my friends were just like oh well yeah 
he went and did his own thing, you know, like, obviously, because uh -huh. they're cats, they're not, uh -huh. they're not our possessions. Now you've, you've lived in incredibly different places culturally, but also yeah. they're very different climate-wise. In where you were in, in South Africa, do you have a winter? Yes, very much. We have a Mediterranean climate in the area I grew up. Um, it's actually the only other place in the world that has a Mediterranean climate other than the Mediterranean. So we have um, wintry, I mean, very wet winters and we get snow on the mountains, not at sea level, but, you know, sometimes you can see snow on the tops of the mountains. So, yeah, it gets chilly and hot, dry summers. Here, it's always freaking hot. It's just either dry or wet. That That's about the only difference. At the moment, it's dry. And I must say, Cambodia is not pretty when it's dry. It's um, It's apocalyptic almost. It's this red dry dust everywhere and you just want to wash everything um and then of course next month the rains will come and then you know it's just lush tropical paradise it's beautiful but with the rains come you know mosquitoes mold dengue fever which john and i both got last year that wasn't fun so those are the other challenges of living. I mean, it's it's a strange life in many ways. It's this wonderful, stress-free life where we just get to play all day. But on on other levels, it's challenging. I mean, the heat is seriously challenging me at, at the moment. A lot of people have heat exhaustion and heat rash at the moment. Um, in wet season, we have the dengue constant mosquitoes and bugs and spiders get a little bit much power cuts you know <laughs> there's a lot of there are definitely challenges but um they're just different challenges do you have like a steward in Siem Reap be expat or local kind of giving you tips like by the way be careful of of dengue fever like what what did you do when when yeah. you got that's a very serious affliction. Dengue fever is serious. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't fun. Jono spent three days in hospital um on a drip. There's not actually nothing they can do for dengue fever except rehydrate you. Um Yeah, we do have uh it's again, it's taken a long time. And I think I forgot that, you know, by the time I left Beijing, I forgot how long it took to create my tribe, the people I resonate with. And I kind of was hoping that it would be an easier process here. And it wasn't, it was actually very difficult socially. Um, mm -hmm. we went through a lot of sifting, let's say a sifting <laughs> process, but I guess that's normal. And I, I, obviously I went through that in Beijing. It just, you know, I've forgotten. That's what you do when you move to a new place. It takes time. You can't just immediately be friends with someone because they speak the same language as you do. So, but I must say we have an incredible community here of expats and locals. They're really fascinating people. It's a completely different expat community, though, to, the, to what you would find in a big city in China. You know, there are no multinational companies in Siem Reap. So 
you know, you don't get the Shunyi expat crowd. Um, most people who are here are definitely more of an adventurous mindset. I would say they're pretty hardcore <laughs> to live here. A lot of them are entrepreneurs themselves or NGO workers or they've started NGOs. There's a lot of that sort of business or they're in the tourism industry. Um, but there's, you know, you're not going to find bankers or people who work for Mercedes-Benz here in Simrip. So it's a different kind of expat. But we do have a great community here at the moment. And a lot of them have left and gone home to their home countries for the COVID period. And I hope they return. Well, I guess we'll see. Who knows what's going to happen there. What are your options? during the COVID virus? Oh. <laughs> um, I mean, to, yeah, you don't have to be super specific. Do you have options? No. No. Um, no. <laughs> How's okay. that? No, I, I just wanted have... to confirm. So going home is just not an option right now. You know, there's, there's no real point in going home. The s- situation in South Africa is pretty bad. Right now, the lockdown is extremely strict. Um, and yeah, so my options at the moment are pretty much knuckle down and stay here. I mean, a lot of people did have their embassies um, get them out. Overall, I'm really glad I stayed. I'm The only thing that concerns me is when when we weren't sure how this would play out in Cambodia was the medical system here. Yeah, it's 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 definitely not capable of dealing with a, an outbreak. So that made me think twice about my decision. I'm also really aware that these countries are hosting us. We we're not their problem. Of course, we contribute to the economy and we contribute to the development of the place itself, but um, we are not their citizens. I mean, for now, your fate is somewhat tied to that country. I mean, your house, your access to food, water, aircon, internet, power, you have a vested interest in Cambodia doing well and figuring out how to survive and thrive. Like what do people um, not understand about Cambodia? What don't people get? I mean, I think, I think there's still this focus on the past and the war, the genocide, which happened in Cambodia. Mm which is very much, I mean, it's very real. It's, I'm not saying that we shouldn't focus on that. You know, there are still roughly 4 million landmines in this country lying in the bush, um, which are still Mm -hmm. blowing people's legs off on a daily basis. You know, this is, you know, the war and the trauma of the war is, is going to be around for a very long time. But I think what people, I think what Cambodia needs to be recognized for is that there is such a youthful society and they are so full of hope for the future and like we're moving forward and not always looking back 
because a lot of people come on a short trip to Cambodia as a tourist, right? And, you know, they get whisked off around the temples and then at night you go to Pub Street, which is where all the tourists hang out and, you know, all the sleaze also exists in, in the city. And it seems like the whole city is just for tourism, created for tourism, really. It's like a tourism factory, you know, just in and out and in and out and tuk-tuk drivers and everything revolves around this tourism. But again, um, I think if you had to visit Beijing as a tourist, you would probably have the same experience. You'd go to the Forbidden City and... Um, What's that awful part of the Great Wall? Badaling. And, you know, you'd yeah. be whisked off to buy pearls at the pearl shop or factory. And you wouldn't see what lies beneath the surface. And again, I think the only way to experience that is to live in a place rather than visit a place. You know, I'm not Cambodian myself. I haven't been here for years. I don't speak Khmer. I don't at all feel like an authority on Cambodia but what I do see is I see Cambodian fashion designers doing incredible things I see Cambodian restaurant owners creating fusion food and reinventing Cambodian cuisine which is phenomenal I think people need to realize that there's a lot of contemporary art coming out there's a lot of incredible contemporary music coming out um, I see a lot of empowerment uh, amongst local Cambodians and what they're doing. I think they need to be recognized for that. How did people even find out about Cambodia? Like when I think about it, they're just really not on the map, except actually being on the map. They're not in in the news, which is so much different than living in China because China you hear about every day. Maybe people don't understand it, but at least it's, page one you know but Cambodia doesn't even get a mention exactly yeah yeah exactly and that's that's one of the problems I think that's a continuous problem so my in terms of what I can do is I'd like to put Cambodia on the map for wellness my goal is I don't understand why Siem Reap cannot be a wellness destination like Bali is People go to Bali to get better, feel better, live better, um, get their diet, their nutrition, their movement, everything in order, and hopefully come out a better human being. And I don't know why Siem Reap just hasn't tapped into, Cambodia has not yet tapped into that wellness industry uh, yet, but I do think that the potential is there because we're in the tropics, we've got coconuts and sunshine and um, we've got this incredible sacred aspect of the temples, which people are searching for some sense of spirituality. It just hasn't happened yet. And so I really hope to see that in the future, uh, Sim Reap in particular, that people start to view it as not just the place you go to see Angkor Wat or to go to Pub Street, but see it for the incredible things that are really going on here underneath the surface. Will you ever leave Cambodia? People ask me this all the time. So how long are you going to stay in Cambodia? (laughs) And so I'm hoping that 
this will not just be like a fleeting few years of living in Cambodia, but I would really like to um, embed myself more in this place. And right now I can't really see myself leaving Cambodia. So as long as it allows me to be here, I'm, I'm pretty happy with this life that I've created. I can just live my peaceful little life um, here in Cambodia and hopefully help Cambodia where I can as well. You know, for, for better or worse, this is our home for now. And with China, that was my home. And now this is my home. So I feel very strongly connected to Cambodian people and I care what happens to them. To all of you struggling to make a new home, do the Debbie dance and hold that space. Get moving with Debbie's Nia classes online, follow her socials, and wherever you are, whatever you are, embrace the adventure, aliens.